You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, here in Luke chapter 9, we get the answer to the question that the disciples asked in Luke chapter 8 after Jesus calmed the wind and the wave uh, on the Sea of Galilee. They asked the question, who then is this that he commands even the winds and water and they obey him? And here in this text today, we're going to get the answer to the question, who then is this? And the answer, of course, will come from the mouth of Peter, who in Caesarea Philippi will declare, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But before that movement, Jesus sends his 12 disciples out on a special journey and mission uh, in verse one and following. Let's read it together there in verse one. It says, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, many people refer to this movement where Jesus takes the 12 and now he's going to send them out, uh, not with him, but apart from him, he'll send them out in twos to go to various villages to preach the message of the kingdom and work in miraculous ways. And many people refer to this as the third tour of Jesus in Galilee. And it's sometimes difficult, I think, to patch together because we sometimes see the trees and miss the forest. But when you look at all the gospels together, it appears that Jesus uh, went through a circuit of preaching in Galilee three separate times. The first time it appears that he called at the Sea of Galilee for fishermen two sets of brothers, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and that they followed him as his special disciples during that first tour. Not that the 12 weren't there. They could have been there interested in sort of forming a larger group of disciples. But at the close of that first tour, Jesus then prayed and selected the 12. And the 12 became the exclusive disciples of Jesus. Jesus then went on a second tour of Galilee, with the entire 12. Now, this moment where he calls the 12 together, gives them power and authority over demons to cure diseases, it appears that this is the third tour of Galilee. When you read Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, it says there that when Jesus sent them out two by two, he then went to their villages, their hometowns and preached. And eventually in chapter 10 of Luke's gospel, we'll see that Jesus additionally sent a second wave of 72 disciples all throughout Galilee to preach this uh, gospel message. And so this is a very strategic thing that Jesus is doing. Notice there in verse one that he gives them power and authority, gives them power and authority. And uh, the borrowed authority of Christ uh, in the lives of the disciples is a theme that works its way, not just here in the Gospels and not just in the book of Acts, but right down to the modern day uh, inside the body of Christ. I think it's important for us to remember the power and the authority that Jesus provides, even in the, you know, more sublime uh, types of ministries that the Lord calls us to even today. I think of husbands in their homes. You might not feel that it's as 
powerful of a ministry as Jesus sending his disciples out two by two to proclaim the kingdom of God and have power over the demonic realm. But two, as a father, believe that you are operating in and running in the power and the authority that Christ has given to you, relying upon his resources to get the job done is only a healthy perspective to have. And so Jesus sends his disciples out two by two to proclaim the kingdom of God, it says there, and to heal. And so their main ministry was the bottom line, I believe, of proclamation. And and really, to remember, I think we're pulling some principles out of this moment of ministry. Our modern day church ministry will look a little bit different than what the disciples did here at this third tour of Galilee. Uh, however, one beautiful lesson that we can receive from this is that when they went out, their greatest asset was the message. They had authority over the demonic realm. They had power to heal, but the greatest asset that they possessed was the message Itself, And so it's so important for a church, for God's people to be people of the cross to deliver the message of the kingdom that talk of the cross of Christ and that it is constantly upon our lips. Now, in verse three, Jesus gave them some specific sort of functional directions on how to go out two by two at this particular movement. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. Really, in one sense, you could say, bottom line, Jesus encouraged them to pack light for this particular journey. And I think that this would teach them a couple of beautiful lessons. I think, number one, they would learn as they went out with you know, little, uh, they would understand that there was dependence upon their father in heaven. They didn't have extra clothing. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have extra garments. This was a way for them to depend upon the Lord. In Luke 22, verse 35, Jesus will ask them later on, when I sent you, did you lack anything. And so obviously they were to be learning through this particular moment that as, as they had no lack, that God himself had provided for their needs. And so this would teach them dependence upon God. I think as well, this would probably also in one sense, teach them about simplicity. Sometimes the uncluttered life is the life that is more free to respond to Christ's call. But then probably most importantly, they would discover the value of the work that they were doing. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul lists seven different proofs that what he and Barnabas were doing in their gospel ministry was worthy of financial payment. And uh, I don't have time to list every one of those seven evidences, but the final and seventh in Paul's mind was that Jesus had commanded it. And it seems as if it's passages like this that Paul lifted that concept from, that when they went from house to house and place to place, the people in those villages and towns were to support the disciples in their gospel preaching ministry. Jesus then said to them in verse five, and wherever they do not receive you, 
when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony uh, against them. Now, this was a very common thing for Jews returning from Gentile territory. They would sometimes do this at the border. They would shake the dust off of their feet. And I think that what this communicated to the disciples was the vital emergency of the message that they were preaching. It was no laughing matter. And when there was a rejection of the message, it was important for them to move on because there were others who needed the message. And if a certain town rejected, then others needed to hear it, even though uh, those people rejected, others might receive it. And so the importance of, I think in one sense, we might say, shaking off the personal rejection that is so often embedded in gospel work and in gospel preaching. And so verse six, it says that they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, Herod, the Tetrarch, verse seven, heard about all that was happening. And so as these disciples went out two by two into these various villages and towns, the word of it actually came to Herod, the Tetrarch. He was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So really all of the activity of the disciples, and remember, according to Matthew's gospel, Jesus then followed them up and went to their villages and towns. But all of the activity caused Herod to want to see Jesus. There apparently was a little bit of argument about who Jesus was in the court of popular opinion. Uh, Some people thought he was the resurrected John the Baptist. Others thought that he was an appearance of Elijah, for Elijah had been prophesied of that he would return before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And others predicted that he was one of the Old Testament prophets risen from the dead. Specifically, some people had said in other gospels that he was Jeremiah risen uh, back from the dead. Uh, Herod's response was, well, I know that I killed John, but who is this about here whom I hear uh, such Things And so he wanted to see Jesus. Uh, Eventually, Herod Antipas, who was a very wicked man, he would see Jesus. Pilate would send Jesus to Herod on the day of his crucifixion or the morning of his crucifixion, hoping that Herod would be able to find something of which to uh, give Jesus conviction and and, uh, give him the death penalty. Uh, But Jesus wouldn't even open his mouth to speak uh, to this wicked man who had killed uh, his closest ministry companion and his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, in verse 10, it says, On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now, this is a beautiful little moment where the disciples return from their two by two ministry and they give a report to Jesus. They tell him everything that he had done. And Jesus then looks at them and calls them to go apart to really what seems to be the outskirts of the town of Bethsaida for a moment of of rest and reprieve. Matthew's gospel seems to hint that Jesus went apart 
in order to mourn the death of John the Baptist, which he heard about right at this moment, John in his gospel seems to indicate that there was an imminent threat of death for Jesus and his disciples at this time. And so it was advantageous for them to depart. But Mark's gospel, and it reads that way here as well, uh, seems to indicate that Jesus also pulled them apart, not just for those reasons, but also due to ministry fatigue. You know, they've been out there working really hard. This was a great moment for them to have a season of rest. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. According to Ecclesiastes 3 verse 8, they'd gone out and battled against the demonic realm in one sense. And now it's time for them to have a moment of rest before God. Now, the thing that happens next is that the crowds realize that Jesus has departed. It says in verse 11 that when the crowds learned of it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who have need of healing. So their rest really didn't last all that long. And so Jesus then responds to the multitudes crushing upon him with really a day of ministry, welcomes them, he speaks to them, and he cures them. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging, and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. And he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all of these people. Now, here we have the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. The interesting thing in this movement of the feeding of the 5,000 is that the 12 come to Jesus really with the request to send the people away to go and find provisions. You know, oftentimes we import into this uh, negative motives from the disciples, but they looked at these multitudes and they realized that, you know, we're a long ways from supplies and sustenance. These people are going to get hungry. Jesus, send them away. It could have been a loving request, but Jesus said, you give them something to eat. We know from John chapter 6, verse 6, that Jesus said this to them, testing them, for he himself knew what he would do. It would have cost a ton to feed everyone. And it appears in John chapter 6, verse 7, that the disciples had already predetermined the exact dollar amount of how much it would take to feed all of these people. And they felt that it was an impossible task. And I think that this is a good ministry lesson for us to learn, to know that human resources are not sufficient for the task at hand. Uh, certainly the things that the Lord has asked the church to accomplish for the church to do, it is impossible for us to meet all of the demands and all of the needs in our own strength and in our own might. We need to borrow the resources of Jesus to accomplish the mission that he has invited us into. Now, the reason that the disciples said this in response to Jesus, you know, we only have five loaves and two fish. What are we going to do unless we go and buy food for all these people? Is in verse 14, it says, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. Now, I love this. Jesus here, 
he makes a plan. You know, Jesus has everyone sit down in uh, these groups of about 50 each. So you just see this very organized uh, group of people out there just laid out throughout the countryside, 5,000 people spread out in groups of 50 each. And uh, so often I, I think that we miss the kingly uh, side of Jesus's ministry and the way that he operated. I've already referenced the strategic threefold plan of the Galilean circuits of preaching. But here you have Jesus setting out people in these groups. And I think our popular thought of him is that he was, you know, just very in the moment, uh, no strategic thought and uh, just, you know, opposed to all things structured. But the reality here is that here you have Jesus, you know, another, he is very organized in the calling of his disciples, the ordering of his apostolic band, the selection of Peter, the top tier, the three, and then the four, and, and then the entire 12. And, and here you have, again, just another at least hint at that when Jesus has them sit down in groups of about 50. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, verse 16, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before the crowd. And so Jesus here says a blessing before this beautiful and divine meal. You do see some types of prayer before the eating of food in the New Testament. Paul gave thanks on the boat before his meal in Acts 27. In Romans 14, verse 6, we're to give thanks to God when eating or when abstaining. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 30, Paul partook of his food with thankfulness. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, we discover that Jesus gave thanks before the Last Supper. And in 1 Timothy 4, verse 4 and 5, we learn that we are to receive our food with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so just the earnest thankfulness. And so Jesus here, he, though, doesn't just thank God for the food. He actually blesses the five loaves and the two fish and begins to break them apart in his uh, hands. And it says in verse 17 that they all ate and were satisfied. And whatever was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. I think in one sense, this beautiful feast that Jesus provided, isn't it a beautiful ministry lesson to us to bring our limited resources to Jesus? You know, what is it that you do have? What are your five loaves and your two fish? What are your talents before the Lord? Give him your body. Give him your treasure. Give him your time. Give him your talents. Give him your limited resources and watch what he might do. And the people there were glutted. They were satisfied. They were uh, left uh, filled. And this wasn't just a charitable event in the life of Jesus, but it was an illustration of his kingdom. Let's not forget that all throughout the Bible, Jesus feeds his people. There are great feasts amongst God's people, and this is one of them. But of course, we as the church are waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we will eat with the Lord eternally in celebration of his kingdom. Now, in John's gospel, we learn that at this point, there were many who actually wanted to crown Jesus uh, as king. 
And of course, his kingdom will be physical and visible at some point yet future. But that day was not yet. And so Jesus departed from the people. And it says in verse 18 that now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Remember that question that's been asked, who then is this, is what they asked on the boat. And now we're getting close to the answer to that question. The, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, it was an important miracle. All four gospel writers uh, include that miracle, the only miracle outside of the resurrection to be included in all four of the gospels. It hinted at his kingdom. And so here in verse 18, there he is praying alone. The disciples are there. They're probably observing his prayer life. And upon completion of his time of prayer, he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has uh, risen. Now, Jesus here, of course, in asking this question is not insecure about his identity, but he's setting his disciples up. And they, they give the answer that we saw uh, in Herod's response as well. Some thought that Jesus was John the Baptist. Some thought Elijah. Maybe he was just the forerunner of the Messiah, some people thought. Uh, maybe he's one of the prophets of old, risen from the dead, which would have been miraculous in and of itself. But for anybody else, this would have been an honor to be compared with these men, but not for Jesus. He is so high above each one of them. Then he said to them, verse 20, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Uh, Jesus assumed here that his disciples had another opinion. They'd been with him for over two years now and uh, they had a thought that was above the popular viewpoints of the day. Peter represented it to Jesus or represented the group when he answered the Christ of God or literally the anointed of God. Uh, this is Peter confessing Jesus to be the Messiah, which in Greek context you would call the Christ. The Christ is synonymous with the Messiah. Now, when we think of the Christ, it's for many of us just a title, but for them, the Old Testament deliverer that had been promised had now come. Uh, in Genesis 3 verse 15, a curse had been declared upon uh, mankind and upon the earth and upon the serpent, the devil. Jesus had been predicted of in Genesis 3:15 when God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There was a, in other words, this snake killer that had been promised and predicted. And here, Peter is announcing, you are that figure. You are the one that Abraham received a promise of that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. You are the one who fulfills the predictions and the promises to King David, that there would be an offspring that came from him who would come from his body, whose kingdom and throne would be established forever. And so here 
you know, for us as modern believers, we're imagining meeting the Lord in the clouds. We imagine the triumphal return of Jesus upon his white horse with the armies of heaven. But they imagined the coming of the Messiah for the very first time. And Peter here is pronouncing, you're it. You're the one that we've been waiting for, that we've been looking for. And so deep and beautiful celebration uh, would have been coming from the heart of Peter and the disciples at this moment when they're able to say, you're the one, you're the one. He answered, you are the Christ of God. Just beautiful. Now, when he made this statement or confession, It says in verse 21 that Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Now, we might ask, why did Jesus command such silence here of his disciples? Perhaps because of the popular thought amongst many about what the Christ would actually do. Uh, They didn't understand the true ministry of the Messiah in his first coming. They were looking for things external rather than the deep internal work that Christ would accomplish on the cross, the cross of Calvary. Uh, Perhaps also uh, their limited understanding of him themselves as the Christ. It was a developing concept within their minds and their arguments wouldn't convince one anyways, because as we learned in Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, verse 17, Peter had this revealed to him, not by flesh and blood, but by the Father who is in heaven. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now this would have been a bizarre concept for the disciples. Right after declaring Jesus to be the Christ or the Messiah, Jesus then tells them, Yes, you've gotten it right. However, I need to suffer and I need to be rejected and killed and on the third day raised. And the operative word there is must. The son of man must do these things. I think Jesus had to die on the cross prophetically, of course. The Old Testament had predicted it and prophesied of his death upon the cross. But he had to do it in order to redeem us to himself. Galatians 3 verse 13 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This was the great price that Jesus would pay for us. Now, after announcing that to them, that very sober word, Jesus said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Uh, Jesus turns his attention here to everyone, prominently the disciples, but especially the crowds as well, the curious onlookers. And he wants them to understand that they may have misunderstood the mission of the Christ. Listen, if you want to follow after me, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, then, you know, don't be thinking about the grandiose. Don't be in your mind's eye seeing thrones for yourselves, but see crosses for yourselves. Uh, Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Uh, This was a call from Jesus inviting his disciples to a life of self 
denial. And of course, this statement would sink in when they saw him upon his cross. I love the way Luke records it. Take up his cross daily and follow me. You know, I might live a sacrificial life on Tuesday, but on Wednesday, I need to die once again to the self, take up my cross and follow after him. And really, this is the essence of Christianity, a daily commitment to reject a life based on self-interest and self-fulfillment in order to seek to fulfill the will of Christ instead. And so this can be a struggle, but it can be a miracle. Now, he says in verse 24, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Interestingly here, Jesus uh, announces to his disciples, listen, there is the motive of actually doing the safest thing in losing your life. You have to think about the eternal realm. Lose your life now and you'll save it eternally. Forfeit your life now and it will profit you eternally. Be ashamed of me now and the Son of Man will be ashamed of him now when he comes in his glory in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, verse 27, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, some people think that Jesus, when he said that, meant the day of Pentecost, that the 11 of the 12 would see uh, the spirit poured out. Judas, of course, would have killed himself by that moment. Some think somehow that he was speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem. But others think that he just was referring to the transfiguration, which is the next event in his life, taking Peter, James, and John up to the mountaintop to pray, and they would see him transfigured before them. And I think when Jesus says, some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, my suspicion is that he was speaking of Peter and James and John in that moment. But this is a beautiful life of freedom that Jesus describes, a life of sacrifice, a life of laying down your life for the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. It is a beautiful life indeed. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.